Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's stand together to read God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. One of the most important verses in all of the Bible follows. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work.
Good morning to all of you. I'm glad that you are gathered here. It would be nice if I had something to tell you. Fortunately, I do. We are in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. Don't be fooled by the large five there. Paul has not changed topics. He is still talking about freedom versus bondage. The last couple of weeks, we have looked closely at the allegoreo that he set up, the allegory between the bondwoman and the free woman. And he was very specific in telling us that the children of the bondwoman are also in bondage because their mother was in bondage, whereas the son of the free woman is free, and then he likens us to the child of the free and says that we ourselves are children of the free, and so what should we do when people come around and try to put us into bondage, back into the law, back into the standards and rules, what should we do? Well, his response is exactly what the book of Genesis' response is, which is, throw her out. Get rid of her, get rid of her children, be rid of anybody who is going to try to drag you back into bondage. Now, I needed to remind you of that because chapter 5 begins with what feels very much like a tautology. Paul is going to use the word freedom here at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, and say it was for freedom that Christ set us free, which feels a tad redundant. But we have to understand it within the context that Paul was speaking in. I have several times tried to put us in the mindset of 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, in Roman culture. There was no middle class such as we know now. There were really only free people and people who were in bondage. And you became a free person one of several different ways. You could purchase your freedom if you were a bond slave. You could work off your debt and then eventually purchase your freedom, or somebody could pay that debt for you, and then once they had paid your debt, they could then set you free. Or a third avenue to gain your citizenship, to gain your freedom, was through an extended period of military service. You could go into the military and work for years and years and years, but when you came out, you'd be a free man. Keep your finger there in the book of Galatians. Turn back to the book of Acts for just a moment. Let's go back to Acts 21. This will help us understand Paul's perspective on this. Another way that you could be free within Roman society would be if you were born to free citizens in what was known as a free city. There were several cities within the Roman jurisdiction that were designated as free cities. And one of those happened to be the city, Tarsus, where Paul himself was born. And Paul keeps bringing that up. He keeps mentioning that he was born in Tarsus, particularly in order to designate that he was born to a free woman and a free father in a free city. Therefore, he is a free citizen of Rome. Let's begin by reading Acts 21. Oh, let's start around verse 27. And when the seven days were almost over, Paul had just come to Jerusalem. The leaders in Jerusalem said, when the folks hear that you are here, They're going to say that you are against Moses, and so here's our advice. You should take a vow, shave your head, kill a sacrifice, do the days of purification. Those seven days of purification had ended at verse 27. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the multitude, and they laid hands on him. Crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. 
This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took a hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another thing. And when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind and crying out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. This is who they thought Paul was. There was such an uproar in the temple that when the Romans got there, they thought he must be some really bad guy. Now they're finding out that Paul is actually a free citizen in verse 38. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Now, immediately, that gets credibility with the Roman cohort, because he has just said, I am a Jew, but I'm a free man, and I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which is a free city, and I'm a citizen of that city, which makes me a free Roman citizen. And so now he's going to ask them, why are you treating me like this, considering that I have all the rights of a free Roman citizen? When they had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying... Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are here today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. Okay, the rest of this chapter is Paul recounting his own history, how he was converted, the Damascus Road experience. Go down to verse 21. You've seen now that to the Romans and to the Jews, he has said, I was born in a free city. Therefore, I am a free Roman citizen. <clears throat> Starting at verse 21, Jesus said to Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him, and they listened to this statement. And then they raised up their voices, and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They're upset about this because he has just said that when Stephen was stoned, he was standing by approving, holding the cloaks. But then he said that Jesus himself sent him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. This was so upsetting to the Jews at Jerusalem. They said, away with him, such a fellow, a Jew who would go to Gentiles, 
doesn't deserve to be here on the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him. In other words, they were going to torture Paul until Paul would finally confess what it was that everybody was so angry at him for. Verse 25, and when they stretched him out with thongs, getting ready to beat him, getting ready to scourge him, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by him, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Okay, well, he just completely turned the tables. He just said, I'm a Roman citizen. And so I have all the rights of a Roman citizen, which means you can't beat me. And that scared the Roman centurion. When the centurion heard this, says verse 26, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came. And said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. So he became a free man by working in the army, accumulating money, and buying his own freedom. That was one of the several ways that you could become a free Roman citizen. I acquired citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born free. I was born a citizen. That's why he kept emphasizing where he came from, from Tarsus in Cilicia, a free city. I'm a free Roman citizen. That, by the way, is why Paul was able to appeal his case all the way to Caesar, because he was a free Roman citizen. Therefore, because Paul had said, I am a born Roman citizen, a born free man, therefore those who were about to beat him, it says examine him here, it means they were going to beat him until he talked. Those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander was also afraid when he found out that Paul was a Roman a free citizen, because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so why did we read that whole story? That is the perspective from which Paul is writing When he's talking about freedom and bondage, he's speaking spiritually, but he's also speaking culturally and societally about the differences between freedom and bondage. And that's how chapter 4 just ended. He was talking about the children who came from the woman who was a bondwoman versus the children who came from the free woman. And in that instance, he was talking Societally, he was talking about the fact that the free woman was the actual wife of Abraham, whereas Hagar was a slave woman. Therefore, any children she produced would also be slaves. And then Paul spoke of that allegorically in order to say that people who are under the law are in bondage the same way that the children of a bondwoman is in bondage. And then emphasizes, but we are free. Now, Christ has put us in a position where we are positionally free. And it is for that positional freedom that Christ bought us off the slave market of sin. Because Paul uses that language repeatedly, that we were in bondage to sin. Here, let's try this one. Anybody in this room ever, uh, you know, sinned? Everybody better raise your hand. And the ones who haven't, uh, shame on you. Uh, And since you've become a Christian, have you also sinned? Yeah. How many of you hate it when the preacher asks you to raise your hand? Okay, that's a lot of hands. Now, 
Why, growing up, were you so prone to sinfulness so that even now that you have embraced Christ and Christianity, you still find yourself doing the things you don't want to do? Why is it? Because of the bondage of sin. Paul is talking about sin as a bond that is like a yoke on your neck that holds you down and forces you to act according to your natural fleshly nature. And in a minute, he's going to say that that natural fleshly nature is in opposition to the Spirit of God. So when the Spirit of God takes up residence in you, the battle starts, the war begins. But you have been bought off the slave market of sin because the debt you owe to your master has been paid by somebody else. And because somebody else paid your debt, he now owns you. And what did he do with you once he bought you? Set you free. He set you free from the law. He set you free even from the bondage of sin. And he set you free from the penalty of sin. And he set you free from the wrath of God that you would rightly deserve. He set you free. And it was for that state of freedom that he set you free. You get it now? It's not actually a tautology. He is actually saying Christ did what he did for you in order to bring you to this condition of freedom from those things that would condemn you. And it was in order to bring you to that state that he went to Calvary and paid the price to purchase you so that he could set you free and establish you as free. Okay, so that's the first half a sentence. We're really going to get somewhere today. I can feel it. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, I said all of that. I gave you all of that background. I showed you the difference between freedom and slavery so that you could get to this point. Therefore, since Christ did die for you to put you in this state of freedom, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That's very much like the end of chapter 4, verse 31. So then, brethren, we're not the children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free woman. It is very much like cast out the bondwoman and her children. Paul just said it yet again. Because Christ finished the work of freeing you, stand firm in that freedom and don't be subject yet again to the yoke of bondage. And what is the yoke of bondage within that context of everything Paul has said? That yoke of bondage is the law. And so do not be, again, entrapped, ensnared by the bondage of the law, which can only condemn you because in just a couple of verses, Paul is going to say, if you're going to try to be justified by the law, Christ is no help to you. And he's going to use the singular phrase that you only find in this letter. He's going to say, if you're trying to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So grace is no help to you. That covering of grace is no help to you. And Christ and his finished work is no help to you if you try to be justified by the law. Well, that is a huge yoke of bondage. Go be perfect. Starting from the moment you were born. Oops, too late. That's a lot of bondage. And so Paul said, once you know that, once you know that the law cannot help you, that the law cannot save you, that you cannot be made righteous by the law, and once you know what Christ did in order to purchase you off the slave market of sin, in order to redeem you utterly and completely and pay your sin debt before God, once you know that, stand on it. And don't let anybody convince you of anything else. Stand on it, because as soon as somebody tries to convince you of something else, they're dragging you back to the law. 
They're dragging you back to that idea that you can justify yourself in your flesh. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to that yoke of slavery, that yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now, he's not speaking medicinally. There was a period of time here in America where every male child that was born was circumcised just as a health precaution. That's not what he's talking about. Within Galatia, there were Judaizers who had come and told them, you need to be circumcised in order to be part of the Abrahamic covenant, and you have to keep the law in order to be part of the Moses covenant. In other words, you have to make yourself more Jewish in order to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. It's within that context that Paul is now going to talk about circumcision. So when he says, if any of you receive circumcision, he's saying, if you do that in an effort to justify yourself, if you do that thinking that that's going to make you more righteous in the eyes of God, then Christ himself and his finished work and his redemptive work and his purchasing you to make you free is no good. So you get to stand before God and say, hey, I gave it my best shot. Of course, this is the same Jesus who said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. So how many people here think your righteousness? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands again. How many people here think your righteousness is more than the scribes and the Pharisees? That better not be anybody. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that were trying to keep the law. They were really putting the effort in. And Jesus, in that single sentence, condemned absolutely everybody. Because nobody was as good as the scribes and Pharisees. And yet he said that your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And if it doesn't, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. So he flattened the field and said, nobody's good enough. Because the standard is the absolute righteousness and holiness of God. And nobody can attain to that. And if you start down that path of trying to justify yourself in your flesh, Jesus is no help to you. Good luck with that. Now, let's talk a bit of theology here for a moment, as if we haven't been talking theology this morning. But very common in churches to hear that the law of Moses can be divided into three large categories that there is the civil law, there is the ceremonial law, and that there is the moral law. And then people will argue that the moral law is still binding on the conscience of Christians, but the ceremonial law is not because there is no more temple and we're not sacrificing animals and stuff. The civil law is mostly good, I mean, it's a good idea for a society, but that won't get you justification. But the moral law is still... Anyway, years ago here at GCA, we went through the five books of Moses. We looked at every detail of the law of Moses. And we tried very hard to divide each of those individual 613 ordinances into categories and say, okay, what category does this fit in? Okay, this particular rule, is this civil? Is it moral? What category does it fit in? Is it ceremonial? Okay, so now we're talking about circumcision. Now, circumcision is ceremonial because it does demonstrate that you're part of the covenant of Abraham and that you're keeping the law of Moses. So it has a ceremonial aspect to it. But it also shows that you are a physical descendant of Abraham among the Jews. So it's also very civil. But then the Jews were arguing that you had to have it or you couldn't be saved. That made it moral. So if you're going to be dividing the law up into categories, where are you going to put things like this? You'll notice that Paul, in a moment, is not going to say, you know, if you miss the law in any one point, or if you start down that road of doing the law, He then says, you're you're responsible for the entirety of the law. He doesn't just say, you're responsible for the moral aspects of the law. 
It doesn't say you're, you're responsible for those civil parts of the law. No, the entirety of the law, because the law throughout the Old Testament, what we discovered by going through the first five books of the Bible, the law stands as a unit. It is a one complete law, and it cannot be divided into these artificial divisions that the church seems so fond of these days. Notice the language that Paul uses. He speaks of the law in its totality. He does not allow for the idea that there are portions of the law that have different standards or implications or still important but not as important as this part. And no, he says the law as a unit is what will keep you away from Christ. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. There it is, the whole law. The whole law, all 613 rules, all 10 commandments, all five books of the Bible. You're responsible for the whole thing. That's the same thing James said. James said if you miss the law at any one point, you're guilty of the whole law. But what if you argue, well, yeah, I missed the law at one point, but only in the ceremonial aspect. You know, I didn't go to Jerusalem and sacrifice an animal this last Passover. So technically, you broke the law if you didn't do that. But are you then only responsible for the ceremonial portion of the law? Well, no. Both Paul and James argue you're responsible for the whole thing. Top to bottom, side to side, wall to wall, the whole thing is against you if you go down the road of trying to keep the law for your justification. The beginning of that in Galatia was circumcision. So Paul said, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So anybody in Galatia who listened to the Judaizers and said, okay, circumcise me. I, I don't know who he says that to. But okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be circumcised. Well, then Paul says, okay, now you got to go back to Moses and read every single ordinance, every single rule, every single law, and you better keep every one of them perfectly from the day you're born till the day you die if you think that's how you're going to stand before God and be accepted. If, to put a fine point on it, if you are inspired to go down the road of thinking you can justify yourself before God in the flesh, by your works, by keeping some portion of the law, not only is Christ no help to you, but you have fallen from grace and you are responsible for every single part of the law. How many of you have a guardrail on your roof in case anybody ever goes up on your roof in order to guard them from falling to their death? How many of you have that? It's in the law. You're all lawbreakers. There, you've already broken the law. So how can you look to that law and all the rules of that law and think that's what's going to justify? Paul says it is impossible. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, who goes down that road of keeping the law, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. But then worse, not only are you obligated to the entirety of the law, but you have been cut off, severed. A little bit of wordplay here because we're talking about circumcision and we're talking about cutting And he says, if you get circumcised, if you take that cutting, tell you what real cutting has happened, you have been severed from Christ. So if you're going to go down the road, I know I'm getting redundant now, but if you're going to go down the road of thinking that you're going to justify yourself before the law, why am I harping on this the way that I am? Because I grew up a really miserable kid. And you didn't want to know me in my young days because I went to a church where I was told every single Sunday that it was up to me to hurry up and do better. 
and that I could be justified before God. I was in a church, a Lutheran church, that was really just Catholic light. I mean, I believed that I was going to get to heaven and St. Peter was going to take all my good deeds and put them on one side of a scale and all my bad deeds and put them on the other side of the scale. And if the scale slightly tipped in my favor, yay, heaven. If the scale was to go the other way, uh, hell forever. And you know what that did for me? Made me leave the church. Because one thing I knew about me was I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I got tired of being yelled at. And so I left the church. Can you imagine what a good day it was when I found out about grace? Yes. The day that I found out that Jesus Christ was a complete Savior who saved completely and perfectly and that he accomplished everything necessary for my full, complete salvation and redemption forever. What a good day. So that is why I'm up here stomping away because I know those churches still exist. And I know there are still men in pulpits telling people, telling young people, telling hurting people, telling damaged people that they got to do better in order to get to heaven. And that is the exact opposite of the gospel message. That's why I'm so worked up about this. But by the way, Paul seems a little worked up about it too. I'm in good company. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law and you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law and you have fallen from grace. Everybody kind of instinctively knows that phrase, fallen from grace. We use it in a large variety of circumstances where you see somebody who perhaps got famous or rich or something, and then you find out something bad about them, and then suddenly they're not popular again, and then later on, you know, they're poor and broke, and and they're Milly Vanilli. And, you know, and (laughs) people describe that situation as, well, he had a fall from grace. But the context is very important. The context is Christ is no help to you. You are severed. You are cut off from Christ. Therefore, the grace that is found in Jesus Christ is no longer available to you. So you have no covering of grace. You have no finished salvation. You have no completed redemption. It's just you and the law and the wrath of God. You don't want to be there. So who are these people who are still preaching that you can justify yourself if you just get busy and work harder? That is not the message of the gospel. And yet it runs rampant in the so-called Christian church. But I won't start ranting because Jeff will come up here and tackle me if I do. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you are out from under the covering of grace. For we, verse 5, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. That's where righteousness comes from. And Paul uses all of these words very specifically. First off, it's not through the law that we're looking for righteousness. It's through the Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. That's the first step toward actual righteousness. And because we have the Holy Spirit of God inside us, we have faith in the finished work of Christ. It's a big debate going around about whether faith comes before regeneration or whether regeneration precedes faith. And you can argue about that stuff endlessly. What we know for certain is dead men don't have faith in Jesus Christ. First, you have to be 
quickened. First, you have to be made alive. That's what the whole born-again thing is about. And once you are born again, once you are quickened by the Holy Spirit of God regenerating you from the inside, you then come to faith in the finished work of Christ. As a result, you're anxiously anticipating what you know is coming. That's the word for waiting for and the word for hope. The word for hope in the Greek, elpis, means to look forward to something you know is coming. And anxiously looking for it, really waiting for it, looking forward to that day, confident that because Christ finished the work, that righteousness is going to be imputed to your account. Therefore, you're going to be able to stand before God and he's going to accept you on the basis of Christ's finished work. That's everything we know. That's everything we believe. That's everything the scripture says. How many of you can say right here, right now, that so far today, you've been extra, extra righteous? No. But are you going to be? Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, where'd you get that hope? Where'd you get that confidence? Well, because the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in you, regenerated you, produced faith in the finished work of Christ. Therefore, you're looking forward anxiously, anticipating the day when actual righteousness is going to break out on this planet. Look, I'm sick to death of this planet. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can possibly stand. This world is getting crazier by the minute. Every single day I get up and think, well, it can't get stupider. And then I click on something. It's like, oh, it got stupider. It's astounding what's going on in the world right now. And yet Jesus said that we are supposed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does it feel like earth is acting like heaven? Because it's not. I hope not. Yeah, but is it going to? Eventually, is righteousness going to break out? Eventually, according to the book of Revelation, that kind of righteousness and holiness is going to be so extensive that even the pots and pans that people are baking and and even the bridles of the horses are going to be holiness to the Lord. Okay, is that happening now? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. How do we know? Why are we anxiously anticipating it? Why are we hoping for that? Why are we looking forward to that? Because of the spirit of God that takes up residence in us, producing faith in the finished work of Christ. Therefore, we know because the word of God says it and the word of God is provably, demonstrably true. Therefore, we know these things are going to happen and we're just looking for it. Can't wait for it. If you have the spirit the Holy Spirit of God inside you, that's what you're looking forward to. The day when righteousness and fairness and justice breaks out on the earth. That's where righteousness comes from. It doesn't come by the law. It doesn't come by circumcision. It doesn't come through your flesh. It doesn't come by you doing better and doing good works. Righteousness comes through the Spirit, by faith, And we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now Paul's just going to lay it out plainly. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Okay, but what does mean something? But faith working through love. That's what means something. In a minute, he's going to tell you what that love looks like, what he's talking about. If he had just said that and left it there, you might say, well, what love is that? Is that love for your neighbor? Is that love for each other? Is that love from Christ? Is that love toward Christ? Is it love for Christ? What's he talking about? Well, he's going to define it for us. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. Working through love. I'll tell you in advance that Paul is about to quote Jesus in a few verses, in which he's going to say that love for your neighbor fulfills the law. That the whole of the law is wrapped up in this sentence, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And so as far as good works go, 
as far as Christian activity goes, you don't need the law in order to accomplish it. What you need is the Holy Spirit of God, which will inspire love for one another, kindness toward one another, sacrifice toward one another. And if you treat people according to the gift of the Spirit, you will very naturally fulfill the things that the law could never get you to do. Here's how Paul put it. Verse 7, talking to the Galatians, you were running well. You were doing good. You had the Holy Spirit. You were seeing the miracles. You were believing in Christ. You were doing fine. So then who stopped you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Now, the NASB capitalized the word him there for some reason. They seem to think that Paul was referring to Christ. I don't think he is here. I think he's referring to himself, and you're going to see that contextually as he continues here. The persuasion to leave the way you began, to leave simple faith in Christ, to leave the way that you began in faith, that persuasion didn't come from me. I didn't tell you to do that. So who did hinder you from obeying the truth? And then everybody knows this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We've kind of all grown up hearing that phrase. But within context, what Paul is saying is all it takes is a little bit of legalism. All it takes is a little bit of self-righteousness. And suddenly, you're responsible for the whole law. Because if you put a little bit of leaven into the dough... You women who like to bake, what happens to the dough? Yeah, that, that's what we got back there. She went, the people on the internet could not see the hand motion that went with that noise. But yeah, it just explodes on you. Okay, that's what Paul is saying. If you take a little bit of self-righteousness, you know, just be circumcised. Just keep a little bit of the law. Just tithe. It's just good for you. Just keep some Sabbaths. Just some amount of law keeping. Paul said, as soon as you go down that road, you're responsible to keep the whole law because a little bit is going to make the whole thing go. I'm going to use that sound effect for the whole rest of the morning (laughs) until it becomes irritating. You were running well, so who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then he decides to go with the tactic of positivity. He decides to speak to them as, no, you're going to be fine. I know, I'm confident in you that now that I've written to you, now that I've reminded you that you're going to change your mind. You're not going to follow after the law. You're going to understand that I've told you the truth. Verse 10 And I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you shall bear his own judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still am preaching circumcision, in other words, he's saying, look, if the Jews that came from Jerusalem agree with me, if we're both saying the same thing, If I also am teaching circumcision, then why am I persecuted by the Jews? I'm clearly persecuted by those Jews, so there must be a difference between what I'm saying and what they're saying. And I'm saying that they're going to be judged for the fact that they have disturbed you, that they have perverted the gospel, that they have turned you away from faith in Christ and turned you to faith in your own flesh and your law-keeping. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. In other words, he has said to the Jews that the cross of Christ, the finished work of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ... The full redemption and salvation proffered by Christ on Calvary at the cross. He said, that's a stumbling block for the Jews. 
They get to that point and they go, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going to keep my law because at least I've got that. I feel confident in that. And then someone like Paul comes along and says, no, faith in Christ and the cross of Christ and the finished work of Christ. And they stumble over it. They can't get it. So Paul says, well, if the cross is still a stumbling block for them, and if they're still persecuting me for bringing the good news to the Gentiles, like we read back in the book of Acts, if that's the case, then why do you conclude that they and I are saying the same thing? I'm saying something dramatically different than them. He is so upset about it. He is so worked up about it. He is so upset that these people have come, perverted the gospel, twisted folks who were already running well. He's so upset that he says, verse 12, which in the English language, various different translators have tried to write what Paul was getting at, but it's much more dramatic than even the English gives it credit for. Um, I would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. What he said is, if they're so into cutting, why don't they just cut the whole thing? Because he's that upset that people would come and destroy the grace of Christ. That people would come to people who had already received the Holy Spirit, who were running well, who were following after Christ, who had everything they needed for salvation. Then somebody else comes along and says, no, you're missing this. You still need to be circumcised, and you still need to keep the law, and you still need to do some stuff in your flesh. And Paul is so angry at them that he says, if they're that into cutting, just cut like madmen. Cut away. For you, verse 13, we're right back where I began this morning. For you, we're called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're called for freedom, brethren. Now, there's going to be somebody on the Internet somewhere who's probably typing to me in all capital letters at this very moment. And they're going to send me an email, and they're going to say, you know, that radical freedom that you keep talking about, that's going to cause people to just run wild. That's going to cause people to think that what you're saying is it's okay to sin, people are going to misunderstand what you're saying and you're responsible for the fact that they're going to misunderstand you and you're talking this freedom, freedom, freedom talk and you got to also tell people to do good works. you got to tell people to be Christian. you gotta tell, you got to balance that out. Well, that's what Paul did right here. He balanced it. He said, you've got freedom, but don't turn your freedom into opportunities for your flesh. Don't go down your fleshly path. A minute ago, we all agreed that we were in bondage to sin. Our flesh is still in bondage to sin and still at enmity with the Spirit of God who takes up residence within us. And so we have this proclivity towards sin. That's what Paul calls these works of the flesh, these things that he's going to define later in this chapter. The deeds of the flesh are evident They are immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. So he defines what he means when he says, don't let your freedom make you think that now that you're free, you can engage in all this other stuff and you're going to be just fine. Instead, what he says is, Because you have love for Christ, because you have been loved by Christ, and because you have the standard of loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and because you're to love your neighbor as yourself, 
If you live like that, if you walk after the spirit instead of the flesh, you're not going to do any of that stuff. And by the way, the law restricted you from doing all that stuff. And the law couldn't make you not do it because you were enslaved to sin. But the spirit of God taking up residence in you, acting as a governor inside you, will change not only your standing where you are truly free, but it will change your mind, it will change your heart, it will change your desires. Paul says, once the spirit takes up residence in you, you can't do what you used to do, what you used to want to do. You don't even desire it anymore because you've been changed by the Holy Spirit. And so you're going to change. And so you're going to improve. But you're not going to improve because I stood up here and yelled at you and told you to do better. You're going to improve because Christ Jesus himself is going to take residence in you and improve you from the inside and do for you what the law could never do for you from the outside. So, freedom? Yeah! Am I going to yell at you to try to make you be better? No. Are you going to do better? Yeah. Because the Spirit of God can change you the way I cannot. You were called for freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, sacrifice, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is where we'll pick up next week. Free. Did I mention that part? And this is not a BOGO deal. (laughs) This is not buy one, get one. This is get one for free. Christ is astounding. His grace is amazing. And he did everything necessary to redeem poor wretches like us. Why would you say, I don't want that. And Paul just got done telling you that if you seek to justify yourself through your flesh by the law, that is tantamount to saying, I don't need Christ and I don't need his grace. And you'll be severed from that completely. I join Paul in saying, what are you, nuts? Okay, he didn't use those exact words. He said, you who seek to be justified by the law, do you not hear the law? (laughs) So I say to you today, do you not hear the law? Do you not understand the law? Do you not understand what the Bible says about the law? All the law can ever do is condemn you, and it cannot justify you. Run to Christ. Run to grace. That's your only hope. Jeff and I had a conversation this week. He looked up at me right now, very surprised. He was so surprised to hear his name. What? What conversation? When did we? What? We, we had a conversation about uh, this moment right here, how we make this transition. Because lately, I've just been finishing up and saying, well, I'm done. And I walk away. And then there's a few minutes while the musicians come up here and settle in, and, and then we sing a song. And so... We're going to try to make this transition more churchy, but so far we haven't figured it out, so I'm done.
we often summarize at the end of uh, our messages here on Sunday and Wednesdays with the kind of the summary of run to Christ. That, that seems to be the the general theme, and rightly so. Um, and I was just thinking over verse seven that Paul mentions there: "You were running well. Who hindered you from running well?" That means to impede or interrupt your running. So, running to Christ as is the proper summary that we get from Scripture. He is the source that we are to run to. That when someone introduces law or works and introduces that, it is an impediment into our run. It, it really is a stumbling block, and so uh, we must avoid that. I think, as Paul is so adamant in, in speaking that uh, the. The works of the law are going to impede our running to Christ because what greater motivation is there to run to Christ than knowing that he is the one that accomplished what needs to be accomplished. And uh, you can't accomplish any of that. We can't keep the whole of the law, that's for sure. So I really appreciate that message and free and sovereign grace. you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.